0: Well, welcome back everyone to the whitetail theories podcast we are continuing with the deer camp tour uh episode i think we're like on eight now um it's been a little bit of a hiatus but we got special guest andy Gannis, the big buck killer what is going on andy
1: oh man daydreaming of whitetail while i'm at work
0: <laughs> i bet i bet so why don't you for the listeners because the podcast has been growing and you haven't been on in a while uh let's kind of run through your background real, real quick so people can kind of get a feeling for who you are uh what you do where you're from obviously we're covering Georgia but that whole uh aspect
1: okay yeah absolutely so so I've I've hunted Georgia for my entire life and <clears throat> you know started out with my dad he, he got me out in the outdoors and you know that was I, I learned a lot from, from, from there. Um, you know, it was all about pulling the trigger. And, and I think in my evolution as I, I finally, you know, was able to connect with some good deer with the rifle uh, in my later twenties. I started to really kind of have this desire to, to, to really go predominantly bow hunt <clears throat> um, with the goal of mine. I was trying to shoot a Pope and young deer in Georgia and that was kind of what started me on the path. And, and I shot a couple of deer that were, very, very close uh originally and um I think it was around my fourth buck with the bow <clears throat> was my first Pope and Young and um you know really really fortunate to to be able to to shoot one Pope and Young with the bow in Georgia. But you know, through the whole process it's 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 become more than just, hey, can I go shoot a Pope and Young deer with my bow because the odds odds of, of seeing a, a one thirty class buck or you know, in Georgia it depends on where you hunt, but it also depends on what you're doing outside of that. What are you doing to prep the ground? What are you doing to hold the deer? What are you doing to feed the deer and provide cover, water, um, and, and very minimal intrusion? Because it doesn't take much intrusion, and you start bumping, bumping deer that are mature, that are in that range of what you're trying to hunt. So um, anyway, that's kind of where I am. I've, I've been fortunate. I, I think I have four Pope and Young bucks right now from Georgia. And, uh, I've got a couple that, that miss it by, you know, an inch or two on the net side, but you know, I've I've had some really good success and, and, uh, very fortunate to have some really good property that,
0: that I've been able to kind of groom and manicure over the last 10 years too. Nice. Nice. So why don't you kind of paint the picture of what it, what it's like hunting in, in Georgia? So, uh, do you want to describe kind of like the terrain and then we'll go down, uh, like herd dynamics, population, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, it's um, so it really, it, you know, it kind of depends on where you are in Georgia. And and right now, I'm in Southwest Georgia with the the property that I hunt, and it's a lot of plantation pines, um, just kind of really open. Um, you know, we do rotations on burns, but but when whatever's you know two three years of growth, it's it's really almost like CRP. If you go out west, it's like CRP essentially. I mean, you can lose deer if you're sitting on a pine, pine plantation, pine flat, you can, you can lose deer, um, in, in this stuff. I mean, it's super tall. So, so that's predominantly what you see in Southwest Georgia. Now, in some areas of Georgia, it's super, super thick, you know, prescribed burning is not really a, um, something that, that, that they do on properties that are hunting leases. So some areas could be extremely dense and, and make it difficult to bow hunt. Um, so you got a couple of different terrains. Now, now, where I hunt, I do have a few little rolling hills, nothing like extremely major, but for the most part, most of Georgia and the southern portions are going to be, you know, flatwoods um, until you get southwest and you kind of catch the end of the Appalachians there. It's it's a little bit of rolling hills too. So
0: That's what I was just about to ask you. I was going to say, are you pretty much right where the, the Appalachians like kind of tail off? yeah and and it's um it's
1: it's, the flint river is not far from from uh from the property so there's there's a lot of uh it's a it's really actually a big native american area where i I hunt the um kolomoki mounds which is a big trading outpost for indians way back or it's in that area but it's it's really really scenic and and, uh, you do get some rolling hills because of that kind of on the, you know, on that West side of Georgia, that's really where you get a little more elevation changes, uh, versus, you know, the central to to Eastern side.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. What is, what's the hunting pressure like down there? Um, I know I hear oftentimes people say that their state's just absolutely loaded with pressure, uh, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you always hear that it's different down south that the deer are, are just super skittish and, and super whacked out because of the hunting pressure.
1: I, so I've hunted public property now it's been, <clears throat> it's been a while since I've been on public ground, but uh, in Georgia, there is a lot of pressure, and um, especially from a rifle hunter perspective, you know any, any place that's open all season for rifle, it, it tends to get quite the traffic. Um, you've got to find those WMAs I, where where I was I whenever I was hunting pretty regular, I would go during archery season. There's a lot less pressure, just not very many bow hunters in Georgia, um, you know, predominantly bow hunters and, and, and there are some areas that are archery only and uh, you know, that's kind of where I would key in on to, to find reduced uh, pressure because otherwise you're going to have to go super deep into the woods to, to be able to find a, a buck that's not, you know, super skittish of any type of,
0: uh, intrusion. Right now, does Georgia have quite a bit of public land?
1: Actually, yes, It's it's got quite a bit it's got some federal land also, which, um, my understanding and, and don't quote me on this, but this is through a conversation I have with someone, the federal land you can hunt on. And I don't believe it takes away from any of your tags that are state tags, like your, your normal buck and doe tags it's a completely separate uh completely different tagging system for, for that federal property but there are a, a numerous amount of uh wma's and and varying in sizes some of them smaller but some of them you know 20 and thirty thousand acres which are you know really
0: really large tracks yeah that's very large tracks wow um so I'm sure if anybody is like relatively interested in the hunting industry or hunting entertainment, they've seen that George has kind of been in the, the limelight here as of late through the guys over at Seek One shooting those, those big deer in Atlanta. Uh, the hunting public was down there, I think last year, the year before, they shot a really big deer. Uh, what is a real uh, expectation of a, a good quality buck as far as like inches of antler and, and age dynamics from what you've seen?
1: So so it's kind of it's kind of subjective to where you're hunting. Um I know here where I live, I used to hunt Lowndes County, but but it's really difficult. I, I had a track, it was 150 acres, it had great great potential and I shot a really good deer off of that track. But my neighbors were, were shooting, you know, hundred and twenty hundred and twenty inch deer, but they were they were three year old deer. So you know, I think if you're if you're looking at kind of an average, um, if a deer reaches four, five years old, I would say kind of a 120, 130 is probably kind of your average deer. And then your your outliers are the 140s, 150s, um, you know, and and, and then you have the occasional 170, which happens, you know, at least on, on my property, it's probably every three to five years, I'll have a 160, 170 on camera or at least the neighbors that may have it on camera. Cause we, we share pictures just to make sure we're all on the same page on what we're going to shoot and pass. Um,
0: That's cool that you got that relationship with your neighbors like that. Cause uh, not a lot of people have that.
1: No, they, they don't. And, and you know, I want to encourage people to reach out because <clears throat> we we've, we've got a, uh, a thing in Southwest Georgia. It's called the spring Creek co-op and it's about 20,000 contiguous acres um, where we all you know, the, the goal is to not shoot three and a half year old deer. And we, we connect every year. We, we have a big, you know, before the season kind of a kickoff and everybody gets to meet one another and you determine where your land is. And and so then you exchange numbers and we have a website where we share pictures and, Hey, this deer is four, he's got major potential and we're going to pass him. And then you start getting people on board with that mentality. And, um, you know, you can really grow some big deer and
0: Early County
1: has been a, a rising up and coming County because of that program. That's, that's being implemented there.
0: That's awesome. So what is the, uh, like the, the buck to doe ratio look like, and then kind of, let's talk about the herd dynamics. Uh, like, are your deer densities really high? I would assume that that's relatively, uh, subjective to where you're at as well.
1: It is, you know, in places where there's ag, it can sustain, uh, deer populations a little bit higher um you know and in, in in the area that i'm hunting
0: and, is there uh, is there a lot of ag down there
1: there is i it's it's, it's i i believe it's the peanut capital oh okay um, So grow a lot of peanuts there uh which helps tremendously so peanuts and and corn and cotton those are the predominant things uh that rotate and, and i don't have the ag on my property but i have it on both sides and i'm kind of the I, I won't say I'm the only betting, but I I'm predominantly betting. So I'm really strategic about where I enter and exit and what roads I travel down. I try to leave a core area so the deer feel comfortable there. And um you know, that's really the, the ag is, is 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 the big thing. Um that, that you asked you sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um No, i asking about herd her dynamics and in, in the yeah. population density. So <clears throat> You know, and this is, this is no joke. And in, in most, most sets, if I see less than 10 deer, it's, it's a slow hunt. Wow. So it's, it's a really high density of deer. And now last year, uh, both, both my neighbors on each, each side, east and west, and I've got a really big ag field to my South. So I don't even, and then it's a, a major clear cut to my North. So it's a hard road North and South. So I I really communicate with the neighbors on the east and the west, but we really determined that we had way too many does. So uh, collectively we took, and it's about, I'm going to say 800. It's about 25, 2600 acres that we have collectively right there. And we took over 60 does off the property last year. Wow. Um, Which was still not enough, but, but I tell you what I have, never seen rut activity like i have this past i was i was hunting the whole last week and i've never seen rut activity like I, I did i have this year
0: so if you had to take a guess at like deer per square mile uh what would you guess that to be
1: oh i would i would say north of 30 for sure wow i mean this is yeah i would say north of 30 because I'm running a lot of cell cameras, right? So, so it makes it really, uh, convenient to be able to run a, a little bit of a survey, if you will. So all my cameras t- tend, tend to go off at the same time. I've got a lot of them on food plots. And so I can, I can kind of do a count, right? They're spread out across 600 acres and, you know, I've got three, four or five does at each, each one of those places along with a few bucks. So, um, you know, it's a, yeah it's a a high number of
0: deer that's crazy what what is your um what's the tag allotment for down there
1: so 10 does per hunter plus two
0: bucks wow yeah i mean you got to have a pretty high deer density to be able to uh supplement that kind of harvestability i guess that tag count that you can get
1: oh yeah
0: yeah and uh
1: we're we're going to kind of do the same thing again this year. We're going to we're going to take it at least that many is kind of the plan. I've already talked to both the neighbors and um my kids are are into hunting now. So uh my son likes to pull the trigger and and he he doesn't care if it's a doe. Now my daughter's a little she's a little hesitant. She wants to shoot a buck only. But well, we're going we're going to put something <laughs> down. I mean uh you know that is something something that I'm going to have to do though being that we're going to start taking this many does every year, I've, I've got to start trapping. I've got a lot of coyotes. Um, so either I'm going to trap myself. I may even bring in someone to trap because I, I do have quite a few coyotes.
0: Nice. I, I've, I've heard of that. Um, there's a guy down there. Oh man, I can't think of his name right now, but, um, he basically does uh wildlife management and predator control and he makes a pretty decent living doing that. Um, basically, going from property to property, just working on coyotes.
1: Ah, what is well, that? if you can find this information, i I would, uh, I would welcome welcome uh, <laughs> a contact because, you know, i I know I've got a coyote problem. So if I'm if I'm going to take that many does in order to kind of make sure I'm, I'm keeping the the age structure flowing properly, I've I've got to make sure that I, I have good fawn recruitment. And I don't feel that my fawn recruitment was. It's tough to it's tough to estimate that. I, I would say probably I I want to say at least fifty percent, but no more than seventy percent. Kind of in that range would be what I, I feel
0: like I was this past year. That's really good. um How many twins are you seeing? Um, I, honestly, I didn't have that many twins this
1: year. Now, you know, like last year, year before, I, I can think of numerous times there were twins, and, and even in the last five years, I, I've seen two different triplets no Mm joke. Um, which is really rare, but I, I really, I I saw a bunch of singles this year. Now, now that doesn't mean could have been a, could have been a pair and and a coyote got one of them, you
0: know? Right. Right. Or, or the the other one got sick or who knows? Um, yeah, that's usually a really good indication of herd health, uh, is how many twins you're having on your property. If you see a doe with a lot of twins, you know, that your, your habitat is supporting, is able to support that, that deer number. Um, if you're not seeing a lot of twins it's usually the the opposite of that where the, either the habitat can't support it or there's a lot of other mortality whether it's predator mortality uh farming cars so on and so forth
1: right right I, yeah and I, I feel that the habitat would would definitely definitely supports a, a large you know with the ag and then you know there's a lot of a lot of a lot of browse underneath those plantation pines you know, bigger mm-hmm. weed and uh, we got Lespedesia, which is really a really hot protein and and uh, legume so there's a lot of i've got a lot of brows on 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 the property
0: yeah that's that's always good so andy uh let's kind of transition over here and let's talk hunting I know that you've uh had quite the season well, the people around you have had quite the season um your season was potentially a little rough but let's let's dive into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So
1: so I have really uh man, it's, it's kinda of funny. Last year was the first year my kids hung with me and uh, my son shot giant, giant eight point. Um I'm sad, sad to say it's it's bigger any than anything I have uh gross. Like he, he's got me by like an inch, no joke.
0: That's awesome. Uh,
1: but you know, he was he was he was pumped. They got him that got, got him fired up. I think he ended up getting four does also, so so, I mean, he's at seven last year and, and, and already killed five deer. And then this year he's killed a doe and a, he shot an eight point over Thanksgiving, which was a buck I had kind of uh, marked as a, you know, good mature deer that needed to go. And I saw him in early bow season and <laughs> I, I started to shoot him. And, I you know, now, now the coal bucks, I, I have a whole, whole different purpose for the coal bucks. Instead of me killing them, it's like, okay, I'm going to pattern the coal buck to go take my son and my daughter to let them shoot it because they get just as excited about it. Right. Uh,
0: Not that I'm not trying to put them on
1: trophy deer, but, you know, I'm trying to explain all this to them so they can kind of understand, Hey, well, that's a deer that, you know, is, is mature. He's old. Let's shoot him. And if we see a mature deer now, like my daughter, we, I I tried to put her on one and she actually missed, missed an eight point. It was mature at like 200 yards, but we, we passed on an an eight point and a 10 point before we saw that deer, Um, you know, and, and, I'm explaining to him that look, if, if it's a 10 point and they're four, those are the deer that have to make it a five or six. And that's just, you know, I, I hate to be the hard, the hard, hard parent there, but you know, she, she got a six point earlier in the season that, you know, I, I'm trying to, I won't say kill every six point, but six points are not really on my my list of deer that I, I want. Cause they tend to be the, the always eights I've found. Right. Um, so I've and I've got some really good, you know, young deer. They're eights, and I've even I just found a deadhead that made me sick. It was a ten point with bladed brows and a kicker. And uh, anyway, he was he's probably one year old, might even maybe two, but but no more than that. But wow. Um. But no, I've I've got a lot of mature deer this year, and my daughter missed. She's missed two eight points now. One was a 200 pound pound deer. And that was earlier in the season on youth weekend, but you know, I've, I've I've really kind of, you know, like I said, I've been bow hunting for so long and and now they're wanting to get into it. They're, they're taking the rifle. So I'm I'm kind of enjoying a rifle hunter perspective for a moment, you know, kind of going back to your roots, super easy access, getting into, I mean, we're, I'm parking a, a golf cart, Strategically, thirty yards from the blind, and not disturbing deer, like we are able to get into the blind and have deer one hundred and fifty yards away and never even see us get in.
0: Mm-hmm. So, it's, like
1: that—that that part of it's fun to me. You know?
0: It's like a breath of fresh air, isn't it?
1: It really is, and it—it it inspired me to take the rifle um, this year. This would be the first time I've taken a rifle in uh, twelve or more than twelve years. But
0: so. You know, is- It's funny that you're bringing this up because I've hunted with a rifle three times this year and it's the most that I've hunted with a rifle probably in like seven years. And like, I'm in the same boat as you. It's like, it's like a breath of fresh air. You don't have to sneak in that last hundred yards to get in tight to a bedding area. Um, you, you don't have to worry about scent quite as much. Um, all these other facets that you, when you get in that grind of bow hunting that like, it's just part of the regiment. you don't have to worry about it anymore.
1: No, I I agree. Like it's, it's easy. I mean, I won't (laughs) say it's easy, but, but at this point it is, you know, because I'm like, okay, well, I know the wind's coming out of the Northwest and, and I know the deer are traveling here. I can just set up here and I can see all of this perfectly. And, and I tell you what it's good for too. In my, my opinion, I was thinking about this. I was actually in the stand this morning you can see so much so like i'm learning a lot about deer movement even though i may not necessarily shoot anything i at least get to observe so i kind of like that i'm i'm, I'm, I'm enjoying being able to see deer at a further distance and observe how they move because it's going to help me strategically plan how i want to bow hunt right certain areas that maybe i haven't considered doing that before so it's kind of like an observing, and then I'm going to move in with the bow later. And that's what I've gradually been doing with this climber is moving a little bit closer to the trails, just trying to see if I get bow range. And I could have smoked one this morning that was, you know, 10 yards underneath my climber.
0: Right. Right. Uh, I want to rewind here a little bit and and talk about your kids a little bit more. So you were talking about how uh, you're, you're putting them on call bucks and uh, you're basically getting kills under your boy's belt like, I want to I wanna, uh, commend you for that because I think that's really important in a young hunter's life is to really get kills under their belt and not necessarily always go after the trophy animals. One, because it teaches them woodsmanship at an early age. And then two, it doesn't put unrealistic expectations in their head at an early age, too. And I think a lot of youth nowadays get caught up in that.
1: No, I I agree with that hundred percent. There's, um, I, I've taught the kids that are passing. You know, small deer, which is fine if you're passing small deer because they're young deer. But you know, I I'm, I'm trying to teach my kids that I of, of, of shooting mature deer, and then you know, luckily I, I I have a good deer population where I've got a bunch of deer that are mature and maybe their their racks just aren't aren't massive. But you know, it's free game. I. It's it's fun to me because now I can I can help them target a coal buck that I would like to remove anyway because I found a lot of times coal bucks are the ones that uh, they run your good three and four year olds off um, inevitably just because of they their tend to be big bullies you know they they have big bodies but, but they have small racks I, I've seen that so many times
0: right yep
1: um, but you're right I mean the, the kids want to pull the trigger they're not worried as much about the rack and the score, you know, that those are, you know, it was a fluke. My son shot the deer last year. I, I knew the deer was crossing the road, but I mean, I tried to get him on multiple bucks before that one came out. Like we, we were not holding out for that deer, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Like um, I, I know, I know a kid that's like 16 and he has grown up shooting like really big deer basically his entire life. And he's now 16 years old. And doesn't shoot anything under 165. Oh, man. Yeah.
1: And, and, and you know, it's funny because some, some, some adults get that way too, mm-hmm. where they're like, uh, I've, I've, I've not, you know, I've, I've killed, I've killed a deer bigger than that. So I'm not going to shoot it. But you got to think about herd management. That's really the, the, the mindset I'm, I'm trying to teach my kids is look, it might not be the biggest corn deer, but he's, he's a mature deer. And you know, like my daughter, I was like, we we're passing Thor. He's a four year old, and we're trying to shoot this deer. That's a smaller rack deer, but he's mature. You know, if and, and that's, you can get is a kid can get just as much enjoyment out of that. But but you if you're if you're just going to set an inch level of what you're going to kill, you're going to end up having a, a deer population that's unbalanced, or or your mature deer are going to stay there and they're never going to be the desirable rack size because they're going to stay there and they're going to grow old and be dominant over all the other deer.
0: There's, there's for sure that aspect of things. And, uh, the other aspect is I feel like you can get burned out doing that. Especially if you do it at too young of an age where you don't have a lot of kills under your belt. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, you're going 10 seasons because you haven't seen a 165 incher. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. you said you said you'll you'll get one that's pushing a booner what every three to five years right, and that that's in my opinion if if you set your goal at a booner, that's what you're shooting right something that's close to a booner mm-hmm. that's gotta be really hard to do and potentially not take the joy out of hunting, you know what i mean yeah no i I agree
1: look i i i like I like shooting mature deer and and you know Obviously, everybody likes a a, a high scoring deer, but mature deer are, are what's what it's about. You know, if you can get a five year old in front of you, you've really done something. That's a trophy because at five they they have a they have a certain way about the woods at that point. Like they are extremely familiar and have gotten extremely smart in that five, in those five years of knowing how to navigate and stay out of reach of predators from from, from all likes humans and And, uh,
0: even, you know, wild predators too, so that's, you're, you're exactly right. And kind of to piggyback off of that. It's like you're, when you start targeting older age class animals, when you feel like you've gotten to that skill level where you can target older age class animals, these animals are hunted 365 days a year. Most people think that it deer and just game species in general only have to deal with predation when hunting season comes around, but that's not really the case, obviously. I, I mean, they're getting hunted by bears, by wolves, by coyotes. I mean, you name it, um, bobcats all season, all year long. And if they're able to stay out of the way or stop to live from predators who make a living, like they survive by killing animals. Yeah. Yeah. They,
1: (laughs) they've become efficient at it.
0: Exactly it's it's a whole nother it's a whole nother animal to chase
1: yeah and you know what's fun to me is is trying to understand a particular deer. you know mm-hmm. like what makes this deer tick what why is why is this deer do a certain thing and that's like the deer i'm hunting this year shredder and and I've, I've got five years of history of this deer i've seen him every year except for last year last year was the only year i did not see him um but i hunted a different part of the farm he broke his he broke his main beam off in like early November. And I was like, all right, well you're getting a pass. So, um, but you know, that, that learning that deer, I've got a plethora of cameras out to try to help me pinpoint it, but that's, that's what makes it fun to me is finding out what a mature deer does and then trying to understand why they do it. Because I think that makes you a better hunter in the process. It's like, okay. And some of it's hypothesis, right? I mean, you, you kind of have to, Big time. To think a little bit and you almost have to be a little bit uh obsessive, compulsive with it and analyze every little thing because it could be a really, really small detail that could make it work out if you can really break it down and, and determine what what maybe is what's the missing link, right? Like what's not working for you.
0: Do you have any um examples of something like that to, uh, to paint the picture for our listeners?
1: Yeah. So I'll give you the example. And and there again, this is a hypothesis. There's no way to to know hundred percent, but, but I, I monitor the, the camera activity and I've got a food plot and a, and a feeder and a, a really good kind of transition funnel area. And that's pr- predominantly where I, I've been hunting, trying to shoot shredder because everything's really tight there. Like all the bow shots are, you know, within 40 yards. And, but, but the problem is I walk, in, I walk down this road and I've always had this, and, and even I hunted a deer flytrap last year and, and I felt like this happened with him. Um, I'm walking down this road and the wind's in my face the entire time whenever I hunt it. I mean, 90% of the time, but there's a, a plantation pine flat that's south of me to my right as I'm walking in. So winds in my face. And I've always wondered because this deer, I could get them so pattern coming through this area, and then sure enough, I would show up, and they don't show up, and I'm like, "Well, what's going on?" You know. And so I, 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 I put a camera on a scrape, and through that scrape, I was able to figure out I was getting morning and afternoon pictures of Shredder on this scrape. Well, the scrape's right where I walk walk down this road like it's 50 yards south of me and there's a really thick head and it's kind of on it's kind of on a hill that drops down into the plantation pine i don't know if that's painting the picture well but it's it's to where a deer could could bed on this hill and overlook this whole flat and they would still catch the wind at their back
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um but anyway my, my hypothesis is that that shredder and even some other deer are bedding in this pine flat and they can see me walk in to this stand, it's it's really the only way I can come in, unless I dis- disturb other areas. Now, before next season, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a different path into the stand. I, I think I can make one through these little uh, ponds. But, um, I mean that's that's kind of like an example, I guess, of looking at, at things and kind of obsessing about it. You know that the deer shows up for three days, morning and afternoon, and then you go on the fourth day, and they don't show up, and then that afternoon you don't hunt and they show up and kind of makes you scratch your head. Why did that happen?
0: Right. Yeah, no, uh, I've definitely been in that boat before. And then like pretty much a similar situation to you is where a buck was using bedding almost the exact same way. It was on a knob and my entrance route was into this bottom where I thought I had the win the the correct way. Well, I did have the win the correct way uh to get to the stand, but he's watching me walk in. Mhm. So, I mean, now now it's back to the drawing board, but at least I was able to figure that detail out.
1: Yeah, and 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 access. Yeah, I think you hit the key point that most people they they say, "Okay, well this is my road. I'm going to walk in this way." I don't think a lot of people put the the effort and time into really considering access, hmm. and a lot of people ruin the hunt before it even starts because they don't properly think about, you know, oh, well, this day might be in a good spot, but if you've got to walk through the bad area where the deer are going to come from to get there, then it's not a good spot,
0: right? Yeah, and I think people drastically underestimate how well whitetails can smell, yeah. So, I agree. You, you walk into a place where you're like, eh, it might be the deer, the deer might be three, 400 yards up above where, uh, I plan to hunt, but the thermals are pushing up that way or the wind's pushing up that way. And then you go and you sit that stand and you wonder why you don't see anything. It's like, you probably scent busted them out of there. Even, even though it is still that far away.
1: I, I agree. And, and you know, what's funny is I think a lot of people have the perception that they didn't. Busted deer out if they didn't hear the deer blow.
0: hundred percent exactly right. Yep, hundred percent. Um,
1: you know, and 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 I would say nine times out of ten, and, and I might even be conservative with that, a buck is never gonna let you know with a blow that he has winded you. He will he will walk out quietly and tail tucked, he's not gonna lift his tail, like you're not gonna he's not gonna let you know that he was even close to you.
0: Mm-hmm so here's here's a really good example of of what we're talking about right now so I haven't done this in a while but um I hooked up with a couple buddies for rifle season and we started doing deer drives and it's a it's a really big tradition here in Pennsylvania it's been pretty much a part of hunting rifle hunting since like the inception of rifle hunting in Pennsylvania deer drives are what Pennsylvania hunters do so it was really cool to get back to that and in doing that I got to see some really, really cool whitetail behavior. So we're setting up these different pockets and, and basically driving out these bedding areas. And then you have the standards that are covering the, the X, the escape routes for the bedding areas. Uh I would bet you, like you said, nine times out of 10, or even like you said, potentially higher those, the bucks that we've shot or have seen have snuck out of those bedding areas with the hunters coming in, maybe 10 to 20 yards into the woods, whether they're hearing them, seeing them or smelling them. And every single one, actually, it is a hundred percent. Every single one has just snuck out the back or snuck out the side. Not one of them blew, not one of them came out Mach 12. Like they all just like snuck out like little rats.
1: Every time, man. Every time. Yep. And that's, that's where, you know, you have to, you have to analyze those things. Even if, you know, when you're doing things like deer drives, but, but also when you're in the stand, you got to really determine, okay, if, if, if this spot was on fire and I show up and there's not a whole lot of activity, I didn't hear any deer blow, but that doesn't mean I didn't bust a deer. Like you got to really evaluate everything, right? I mean, you got to go through each step of the process. Um, is this the right wind? Did the deer come into this particular area on the wind I'm hunting it? While why it might be favorable for me, if it's not favorable for the deer, then in how they travel, because you got to know the trail system. If if that's not the case, then you, you know, that's that's one element, but you have to take each of the elements of what could possibly go wrong, like each of the factors, and then run through in your mind and say, okay, well, maybe I need to to reevaluate what wind I hunted on maybe it's good on the south uh, southwest instead of a northeast and I need to be in a totally different tree and coming from a different way
0: well why don't I like I know this podcast was supposed to be based around um hunting Georgia and we'll get back to that but I think we're kind of on a roll here why don't uh if you can think of any failures off the top of your head because I think uh, a lot of people get a lot of value from this can you think of any failures in your head where you were just like, aha, this is what I screwed up.
1: Yeah. So, so I I was really, and, and and I'm kind of speaking to this same area. Um, I was, I was going in to this spot. I had a food plot to the North of me. I didn't think the deer moved South of me that much. I thought they were coming in more from the North and I hung a stand, put a food plot in and I was hunting on like a Northwest wind thinking I wasn't really messing anything up. And I was coming in from this back road um, instead of from the north. And and so I guess my point is like, I, my approach was so wrong. Like I would have fantastic activity on this food plot until I started hunting. And I would notice that the first, first hunt would always be good, right? And, and then the second hunt got a little less and third hunt got a little less. And I started noticing the deer that were coming we're actually coming from from kind of a downwind position, and I think I think over time my my traffic of walking in from that direction. I was crossing over their trails. The wind was blowing back into their face, so I ended up scrapping that entire area. Like I've got, I, I say I scrapped. I scrapped it for two years. I now have an enclosed blind there on this food plot to be able to you know hunt with my kids and not have wind really be an issue. But you know, I don't really hunt it now I just I, I hunt it with them but I plant the food plot and I moved my stand completely north so I could come in from a different road because I, I walked it through turkey season and I realized all these trails are all going the same direction and they all kind of pinch a little further north so they pinched where I was but they had another pinch point so I just basically moved to a different pinch where I had better access I could play a, a, a northeast wind um, which is you know when they would they would want to move in that was favorable because they would be moving into the bedding area with the wind in their face. Gotcha. If that makes sense, and I'm coming in from the west with the wind in my face, so theoretically, you know, I, there's never a perfect stand set up. I, I I have to per se sacrifice a little bit on this spot, but I've I've got a trail that comes out. I mean, directly southwest of me, which is downwind most of the trails are straight south or even to the east but this one trail i I per se sacrifice it i I think it i think i screwed up with flytrap last year um he was just i think he caught my wind one day and and that was kind of the last time he ever came to that area Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um but you know it's it's what it's the best stand option i have i still see a ton of deer in there i try to play it a little more for an east wind and then then the wind doesn't really I don't sacrifice that trail, but, but I have gone in there on Northeast simply because it's, it's not a high traffic trail, but deer do come down that trail occasionally.
0: So I've, I've definitely done almost, I, I actually, I can think of two scenarios where I've done that exact same thing where you, you miss the, basically in, in, like in my scenario, they, they do a big J hook in how they enter. Um, This oak flat and from where I thought they were coming from bedding, I thought it was more of a a straight line. But uh, with that straight line, like how I did my hypothesis, I thought that they would be walking into the food source uh, with the wind basically directly in front of them, like right at their nose, blowing right into them. And that wasn't the case. They actually had the wind blowing into the side at like a cross angle. And they were J hooking sideways into the wind and doing the exact same thing, cutting my trail. And it was the same deal. The The deer activity just decreased and decreased and decreased. And the third time that I hunted it, it was relatively no deer activity. And I'm like, well, what the heck's going on? And I think I had like a, a button buck or, or a, a family of does. I forget exactly what it was, but They came in that direction, and I'm like, I'm such an idiot. Like, I don't know why I didn't think of that. How often do you see deer entering with the wind directly into them?
1: It honestly not not that often. They do like that that angle, like you're talking about. They like, and I think that gives them a little more of a range to be able to kind of, like you're saying, do the J hook. With that angle of the wind and doing a J hook, they can really encompass a lot larger area to kind of scent check mm-hmm. the interesting area.
0: Yeah, um, I totally agree with you.
1: You know, um, that's why, like, I, I try to think about like a straight north wind. A straight north wind to me is one of the most difficult winds to hunt. To me, I, I like a northeast or northwest. I don't find that a lot of a lot of deer activity on a straight north, which I don't get a straight north that often. I mean, most of my stand setups are for northeast because that's predominantly what I have. So some type of easterly wind. Mm-hmm. Um, i got a few northwest because that's the, the other alternate wind that you get. And obviously, early season is a little bit different of an animal, but even early season, I get a lot of northeast. But, um, but yeah, that 45-degree angle, I think they can – they can, they can encompass a little bit more. And that gives them the ability too, to like circle out and circle around and back. And, you know, if they catch, if they catch if it's a, if it's a scent that, that alarms them, then they can, they can circle back and almost determine which direction they need to go. So if you've ever seen a deer kind of like catch, catch wind or something, they'll walk certain way, like five or 10 feet and then they walk back the other way. Mm-hmm. they're trying to scan to determine okay which is is this something moving this way or this way so so they can determine which way they want to bounce off
0: yeah so i also think and um i've heard this i've heard some other people mention this i think but when they do that j-hook um they're not so much worried about directly what's in front of them and it's like you said they're scanning a larger area by doing that j-hook and getting the wind at multiple different directions but they're also laying out their exit trail so yes. when they do that big j-hook they know that they covered that entire area and everything was safe if something comes in from the front they can just follow that j-hook back out into the bedding area
1: that's right that's right
0: and i think that oftentimes gets overlooked is uh, the back trail and and why deer enter locations based on safety
1: yeah, wind wind direction is such a such a key factor. I mean, I I've, I've just I I've talk to a lot of people that are kind of in, new into to bow hunting, and they're like, oh, the winds winds perfect. I can hunt right here in this tree, and I'm not going to have any deer smell me. I'm like, oh, that's that's fantastic. Where are the deer coming from? That's my next question. Where are the deer coming from?
0: Uh-huh.
1: Oh, they're coming from over here. Okay, so so you're you're hunting this on an unfavorable wind for the deer from the direction they're going to come from.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: you know what i mean so mm-hmm. so i like, oh it's a it's a perfect win for you but the deer can't do like you're talking about they can't survey it with the wind they can't do a j-hook from the direction that they would predominantly come from and and i think that's that's another uh, reason i run a lot of cameras so like i i don't like to just go typically and hang a stand and hunt it if i'm not familiar with how a deer moves through it so i'll go and put cameras up um like in October whenever they're switching their pattern um and I'll put them up in areas that are maybe good activity areas where I'm wanting to understand how deer move through and I might hang two or three non-cellular cameras with really either a big battery pack or or some type of battery that's gonna last for a while I'll let that run the entire season I'll I'll pull it in, in late December and then I, I I can kind of assess how the movement is. And there's this uh, weather underground. You can look at the historical wind for uh-huh. dates. So I'll go and check the dates. If there's particular activity that I like on certain days, I'll see what the wind is. So that'll help me determine if I can get into this spot on that wind and where I should put the tree based on wind, or stand based on.
0: So Andy and I covered this on the past podcast. And if you haven't listened to it before, I strongly rec- recommend you go back and you listen to it. But um, a lot of it is centered around uh, Andy's uh, trail camera regiment, And he's very methodical. And he pulls a lot of information from his trail camera setups. You throw it into a in, into a computer, into Excel, right? And you basically log all this information. And by doing that, you're, pay, you're picking the best times, the best winds, the best weather to hunt relatively each stand location, correct based on trail camera data?
1: Yeah and, and the year over year data is really where you can start to build a lot lot better understanding too. So certain areas on on my property are better at different times. So I may have a a really hot area in December. I may have a really hot area in September, October, November. So I kind of rotate those around and I can look year over year to be able to determine what the activity level was for that period of a a week. Like Shredder, for instance, was in in this spot that I've been hunting uh, hunted all last week. He was there from November 14th to November 22nd last year religiously, but he was broken beam so I didn't go in there. He did the exact same thing this year like he started showing up in mid November and he was there all the way through um, about middle of last week until he started, you know, following some does off. But um, the historical data is really important. And that's why, I mean, I've got a big terabyte, five terabyte or one terabyte hard drive it might be five. I don't know. It's big. I've got a lot <laughs> of pictures, but you know, I can see how activity is in certain areas year over year, but then also if I'm hunting particular bucks I can see where those bucks are and what they're doing in that particular time frame because I won't say it's a hundred percent, but a lot of times a buck will do a very similar thing year over year. Um, especially whenever you start getting into that three, four, five year old
0: age category. What, and I was, I was literally just about to tell you or ask you about that. So why do you think it is that mature bucks are doing those habitual things? And I would say it's almost, you can almost narrow it down when you're looking, let's say you have five years of data with a particular buck. You can almost narrow it down to the week. I would for sure say two week time period.
1: Yeah, no, you can. So there's a, there's a couple factors, I think. And, and with the, uh, you know, a year over year, if the buck's in the same area, it's two, it's a couple of things. One, you know, from three to four, they're really trying to establish what is going to be their core territory. And at four, they're really trying to hold that down. Now, as long as they don't get whipped, then they'll probably carve out a little piece of ground. But, you know, a lot of times you have good four-year-olds that disappear at five, and it's probably because some other buck pushed them out. So they moved to a completely different area, and that's probably where they're going to start wintering um, and doing the rut activity just because they found an area where they can be dominant or they're not bothered. So that's one reason and then the the second reason that I think especially during the the pre-rut and the rut I think it has a lot to do with the does. Does have typically like a really smaller core area and the mature bucks that have you know been around for a, a few breeding seasons they know when a doe comes in I feel like like clockwork. And so they they go to that first doe and and they'll they'll stay with her a lot longer that first doe than they will any other doe. And I've seen that on trail camera, which is, which is where my hypothesis comes. You know, Um, I I think it's all like, I had a deer, uh, this has been a a while ago. It was an eight point, a little small two inch drop time. Never saw this deer. I saw him from the stand one year, um, shot, hit him high shoulder. And that was the last of them. I didn't have any pictures of them. And next year, two, I'm talking like a day or two within the day that I shot it last year, he showed up on the camera in that spot. And that was the only picture I had, but he came through because that's typically, I think, when the does in that particular area were coming in. And I think they have a internal clock to be able to kind of know how they're going to – they already have a pattern of, okay, I'm going to go to this group of does first, this one second, these are third. And so I think that has a lot to do with a little bit of predictability during the rut, which is such a hard thing to do, you know, because it's pretty sporadic during the rut. You, you don't really know where the does gonna travel, where the buck's going to run them, but you can know what area you need to be in to shoot that particular deer.
0: So, uh, and I 100% agree with you, and I'm going to piggyback and maybe take it a little bit further. So if, if you start breaking down some of these older age class animals that have survived multiple hunting seasons, multiple uh, just seasons of life of being hunted by predators, okay? They get so habitual just to stay alive, right? Their bedding areas are, are narrowed down to certain wind directions. Their, um, their reproduction is narrowed down so that they can be the most efficient, especially as they get older. They want to try to breed as many does as they can, uh, with the least amount of cost to them. So for example, and what I mean by this is, okay, you'll see a three-year-old or a two-year-old and he'll be running does just all over the place. Right? Well, that takes up a lot of efficiency. That takes up a lot of energy. Those are the deer that are getting like really wore down by the time that deer makes it to five, six, if he's lucky enough to do that. He's got it narrowed down to a science, right? So it's like Sue is going to be ready. October 22nd. Sally is going to be ready. Uh, Halloween, uh, Janet's going to be ready on November 12th. And that's basically what they do. They just move from one patch to one patch to one Mm -hmm. patch, knowing what time they're going to go in. It's not like bucks are going around and it might, it might change a little bit. Uh, with depending upon if there's any other competition as far as other bucks in that area and maybe another buck gets to her first or uh she gets bred a little bit later the the year before uh, and then her cycle just is maybe gets off a week or two um but pretty much everything revolving around the whitetail world is um cyclical yeah And, and I think one of the the common misconceptions is that bucks might breed like 15 does and that's just not reality. Like a buck in a season, depending upon how long that rut goes and how long, what the, what the deer density is, what the doe density is in that area, he might only breed six does in an entire rut in an an, entire season. So don't, don't think of it as like, well, he's going to be going all over the place, just breeding does, breeding does, breeding does it, it, it does. The science doesn't support that. It doesn't work that yeah. way.
1: Agreed. And, and the only thing that really throws that calendar off is, <clears throat> um, two things, I think potentially, um, but you know, everything, everything's true. The only, the only factors is, is how your dough harvest goes. So like I harvested a couple of mature does in an area where they typically come in first. I didn't, I have not had the buck activity in that area that I normally do. And I'm right. pretty sure it's because I probably shot one of the does that come in early. I've not had near the bucks on camera that I typically do in that area. Just, this spot i shot trashy as a matter of fact. But I'm trying to selectively take those out of different pockets. I'm not trying to just take those off of one spot. I'm trying to selectively take some mature does from across the whole Parameter or a whole property, but but even different age classes. I don't want to shoot all mature does because the mature does are the ones teaching the, the other does how to keep the fawns alive, right? Um, which is the second thing that I think could throw off the estrus cycle. Is let's say a doe uh, unfortunately loses a fawn. I do believe that probably kicks their estrus uh, cycle up a little bit faster, but I don't know that to be true. I'm sure there's some science out there on that, but. But I would, I would think that they would become a, uh, they would breed perhaps a little sooner than they would have typically if they would have retained the farm. I,
0: I, so the way that I understand the biology, that is potentially correct, but I think that's a very, very short time period. So, um, that would pretty much have to happen in the very early stages of, uh, fetus development. Oh, so, okay.
1: So losing losing one before it's even born, like a stillborn or
0: something. Correct, correct. Once once wow. that um once that fawn is basically dropped, the fawn or the doe is then gonna go basically through her milking cycle. I mean, like you've sh- I'm sure you've shot does now. Cause when when is when is your rut? It's pretty much like uh, right now, it, right? Yeah, it's
1: right now, yeah.
0: All right, and full swing,
1: full swing. I mean, I, I don't think I sat on the stand last last week without seeing a buck pushing a doe, or a fight, or a rub, or scraping mate.
0: And when when do you typically see, um, like, your major fawn drop?
1: Typically, late July is whenever they. Let I me mean, take that back. Um, I get a couple first drops in like middle of July, but the majority are late July.
0: Okay, so our drop here in pennsylvania is usually around memorial day you'll start seeing fawns getting dropped maybe a little bit earlier but then the majority of fawns are getting dropped that first and second week of june and Uh the peak of the rut as far as the amount of does most being bred is november 17th and that date might fluctuate between the 16th and the 17th but historically the peak of the rut is the 17th and that can be monitored off of the I, how many days is it? A 100, 186 days or 201 days. I forget. I forget exactly what it is. Oh, that's right.
1: You're right in the ballpark.
0: So you can basically work that number forward into the calendar and scientists have done this to track when the most does or when the most fawns are being found. They'll, they'll go through an entire field and they'll, they'll, they'll walk a field and they'll, they have been doing, um, Um, vaginal implantings so what they do is they Uh they they put a tracker in um, the deer's reproductive system and that basically gets pushed out when the fawns drop and they go out and collect the tracker they know exactly when that fawn has been dropped and that's how they figured out when that's pretty serious yeah that's how they figured out when the peak of the rut is
1: that is that is pretty uh i mean that's some next level stuff right there
0: Mm mm-hmm Yep. So, um, yeah, that's why, again, it, like, I think that's one of the reasons why deer are so habitual just because of their biology and how everything, how their entire life cycle works.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, it's funny. I mean, they, they definitely have an internal clock to be able to know about certain time periods. And I don't know if it's, it, you know, moon phases, the maybe the time, you know, I, you got to think. I mean, th- these are animals that live out in the wild. They're day in, day out, never, never. I mean, they're always looking at the sun, the moon, the stars. Not to say they're taking all these things into account, but I'm saying they're, they're acclimated to the environment. So any type of environmental change, they're able to, to, to keep track of, of things in that manner, I believe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then probably the biggest variable is just, um, stress, whether that's predator stress, whether that's, uh, resource stress, as far as like food cover, that kind of stuff that could probably, uh, sway things different time periods. But outside of that, I think it is pretty much dialed into a very close internal clock system. For sure. Um, what, what was the other thing you said something there that I wanted to, uh, comment on, but I don't remember exactly what it was. But yeah, anyway, uh, Andy, we're working on an hour and I actually got another podcast to do here right after you, but I do want to ask you because one of the things we didn't talk about and this whole conversation was relatively supposed to be about Georgia, but we went down some different rabbit holes, which is fine. Um, I want to talk about the rut down in your area a little bit and how you're, you kind of have that Southern rut, but you, you it's not like your ruts in February. Obviously,
1: right, right, and I, I've seen chasing that late, but but it's not, yeah, it's 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 not that frequent.
0: Now, I, I would assume that you get two two spikes of the rut due to just the deer density that you have.
1: That has historically been the case. Now, like I said, I, I have seen chasing on my cameras in February, um, January, and February. No, no joke, um, but we've done a pretty good bit in taking those off the last few years, last year being the, probably the largest harvest we, we did collectively. Uh, But typically you'll see, you'll see that mid December, like right now, right, right now, early, early December through mid December, that's kind of like the first wave. And then right as you get towards the end of December um, towards the first part of January, there's definitely a second wave. That's, is typically pretty good.
0: So Uh, Can you kind of now you touch on this a little bit and I want to I want to talk about it again. Um, You were talking about uh, rut intensity. Now, do you think that that is somewhat subjective based upon where you're at? I I would assume the answer is yes. But do you think that overall uh, the general area of where you're at has a pretty solid rut?
1: Yeah, and and I tell you though, I've seen chasing every, every year. I mean, I see inevitably see some some dynamic of chasing and and uh, but I have never. I, I, and I'm I'm being completely honest here. Like I've I've seen little sparring and fighting this this season. I have never seen it at the level of fighting and scrapes and rubs. Um, and and I, I was telling my buddy this earlier today, we were talking and I was, I was kind of recalling most of my hunts this past week. And most of the time it was a two to one buck to doe ratio of what I saw from the stand. I'm not saying that's what my ratio is, but just from an observing standpoint, you know, I, I'd go and see 15 deer and 10 of those would would be bucks.
0: That's crazy.
1: Now I'm including little spike bucks in that, but. But the fact that I've got that many bucks, um, I feel like it's a really good thing. And, and I think that kind of is what, what plays back into why I'm, I'm trying to shoot coal bucks. Cause if, if, if they're there, then for sure, I'm going to lose some of my younger bucks that may have some potential. So you, I, I'm trying to clean that out, but, um, the dove population being reduced last year, I think is the main reason why the rut activity this year has been so, so much more, uh it's just been impacted so much more than than in previous seasons where I might see some chasing i mean i I saw chasing nearly every time I went the stand
0: that's crazy uh that's really interesting, so a couple things on that <clears throat> if you have that high of a buck to doe ratio that that's great as far as like what you said what you're gonna see on the stand because there's going to be very, very high t- competition for resources. And obviously that's going to create drama between the bucks makes for an exciting sit. However, from, and kind of going back to the biology side of things, let's say that you got a, a nice two year old that you're grooming, right? And you're waiting, you're waiting for a couple of years. You want him on the property. He's got to make it through all the bad boys that are three, four, five, six above him. And then, Secondly, if he's got really good genetics, more than likely anything that he recreates is not going to be on that property. That's right. So for the the listeners, um, kind of like biology's way of protecting like inbreeding, every it's it's oftentimes like a common misconception that a buck that recreates a another buck that buck's then going to be on that property. Well, that's not necessarily always the case. It depends on multiple factors. One, resources, and then two, uh, the buck to doe ratio, or even just your buck density. But a lot of times, that buck, when it goes from a button buck to its, its first year rack, it goes on an excursion and it sets up a new territory. That's so, and that's nature's way, that inbreeding and those same genetics aren't being kept in the same area. yeah no and, and that's that's definitely the
1: case um i believe it's the the doe that that pushes that that yearling off
0: mm-hmm. it's a
1: button buck at that time i mean they just kind of you know part ways and and like you said they they pick up and move um you know and it's, you're never going to be able to to keep all of your young bugs hmm. i mean it just you can't it's and it, it's not not possible but um the, I think the key is to try to find pockets and develop pockets. If you've got property that you can develop, develop pockets that are suitable for bucks, so that they don't travel far. You know, whenever they get to that three-year-old and they're starting to fight for dominance, if they if they have to go and leave a certain area, if it's not that far to another area where they can um, reside, then they won't leave your property. And I've I found that. I can get a different now during the ruts one thing, but like I can get different bug groups, uh, summer and, and, and even winter before, before it gets into the rut. Like there are certain areas that bucks just, it's kind of like a, an unknown boundary, if you will. Um, I mean, it's not clearly defined, but there is like a, a defined boundary and like different bedding areas, like big bedding areas. I get a totally different set of bucks in one than I would in the other. And I've got about, four to five of those. So I can typically get, if I can keep a mature buck in each of those, and that's kind of my plan is to try to monitor each of those areas individually on like a micro level instead of just a macro level. Mm -hmm. That's really where um, I feel like I can, I can produce at least a shooter or two a year that, that are typically, you know, what I'm, what I'm after. Just by having those different areas that I develop based on knowing how the bucks coexist together in defined territories, if you will, within your property.
0: Does that make sense? No, that makes total sense. And like kind of, I guess to elaborate on that, um, think about it like this, right? So Andy's talking about creating micro habitats basically to sustain various buck populations or various pockets of bucks that they don't have to. Totally intermingle, intermingle. and it's more so that like, all right, this buck's got his house. This buck's got his house. Now, if you're doing that, and potentially you're doing that with your neighbors, or you have that kind of dynamic across a relatively somewhat sizable board, you can be really, really successful keeping those those younger deer around. Now, back to like the the button buck slash spike story. If that buck only has to travel a half a mile to basically set up its territory, that is a hundred percent within the realm that you're going to see that deer again at some point or another, whether it's during the rut, whether it's during the post rut, or whether it's during late season and you happen to have the root, the the food sources, a half mile is absolutely nothing for uh, a buck to travel for those three resources. Oh yeah, for sure. And, I mean, depending upon, again, how how your property's set up, let's say that it's potentially three miles uh, across where there's not, like, major blockage. That is, again, 100% withstandable that you might see that same buck on your property again. So, I think you're definitely on to something with that. And as far as, like, stacking the chips in your favor where you're going to be, um, one, housing... Good genetics to housing more buck. I I, th- I think you're on the right track in in my opinion.
1: Well, hope hopefully so. I've, I've uh, you know I've had certain pockets starting to feel that that typically have been by more two three year old bucks. You know that that would be the kind of buck I would get. But now I'm starting to get. Uh, I've got two new areas with with two new four year olds that I haven't. I've been running cameras there with with no no real success in, in finding mature buck, but now now those are starting to fill. So, you know, you almost have to let the cup overflow, if you will, and at some point if you have enough mature deer, make it to maturity, then you can have different age structures and, and it becomes a, a little fun to manage in that way. And I tell you, really the communication with the neighbor has been the neighbors have been uh, it's been tremendous because you can see how much the deer travel too. Like even before the rudd excursions, like these deer are traveling three three miles like like at you know, a drop of a hat in a mm-hmm. night and then show back up in the same spot the next morning. It's it's really insane the amount of ground. Some of these deer cover and and some of it I think is just kind of scoping out different territories to see if they want to pick up the move, which is why I think land management, whitetail habitat management's such a key component. If you're not doing it, then you know, you're you're not setting yourself up to have that year over year success, I think
0: yeah yeah i would agree with you and at least at least thinking about it and trying to do something for sure
1: that's that's right
0: so uh let's wrap up here andy um i really appreciate you hopping on the podcast where can the listeners get in contact with you if they want to talk land management if they want to talk bucks if they want to talk um potentially uh hypothesis on how to kill a buck uh trail camera strategies that whole deal
1: yeah no i i would I, I look i i love talking strategies and and seeing aerial properties of of uh places and trying to help people hone in on one so um I'm on instagram at at andy Gainis. um and then I've also got a facebook page that I'm kind of posting deer hunt stuff on it's at andy gainus also um but yeah shoot me a message and we can exchange numbers if that makes the most sense and you know that way we can we can share share picks um talk about trees i mean i just talked to a buddy of mine today that's decided he's he's going to want to plant some trees so he we talked about different tree types to plant um anyway i'll probably go do like a a thing with him on on how to lay it out but uh i love i love it so if anybody has any questions or just general conversation feel free to reach out
0: yeah and i'll make sure i have andy's uh socials in the show notes uh we gotta hop on and do another panel um interview here sometime when the season starts winding down. Uh I was thinking about the, that today and I think that would be really good um going into late season and then everybody just kind of catching up and talking strategies. So uh I'll be hitting you up potentially for that if you got some free time. But I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to hop on Andy.
1: Yeah absolutely I, I appreciate the invite. Uh it's uh, it's always fun to talk deer hunting I'll do that anytime you want. So uh just let me know man.
0: Awesome. Awesome. All right I appreciate it. Well thank you everyone um, for tuning in to the Whitetail Theories Podcast.